Hey everyone, welcome back to the latest episode of Survive HR. This is a pretty exciting episode. My name is Kelly Scheib. I'm joined here by my co-host. What's your name? Uh, Steve Nail. Mr. Steve Nail to you. <laughs> oh boy. But it is a great day. It's a great day. It is a great day. Why don't you tell everyone why today is a great day? Well, today we are doing a podcast. I guess we do them all live. But this one's live in front of a real audience. We have about 50 people here at uh, the beautiful campus of Anderson University where we're doing our Survive HR conference. And we have our uh, platinum sponsors, Ogletree Deacons, Nash Smoke and Stewart, a couple of representatives with us today to talk about legal issues. All right, so before we do that, I want to, I want to make sure that our listening audience actually believes that we have audience members in the room. So I'm going to count to three audience members, and I'm going to need you guys to make some noise. All right? Noise. I've been in training and development my entire career, so this is just an icebreaker. All right? So ready? One, two, three. Those are real people. That's not even like an audio track. I know. This is great. Those are real people. <laughs> Normally, it's just me, Steve, and a producer. That's right. That's so, right. all right, so let us introduce our guests, and then we're going to talk about the topic of the day. Yeah, we've got, I think we've got Matt Johnson here with Ogletree Deacons, and we've also got Lucas Asper, who I've had the pleasure of working with Lucas for a number of years. Great attorney, and, and, and more than that, a great person. I'm really happy to have both of you here with us. And again, thanks for sponsoring the Survive HR Conference, again, for the second year. You, you, were, you came back after the little first years. I'm glad to be here, Steve. So what, um, what about uh, parental leave? I wanted to talk a little bit about that. Does, let, let's just go for the very basic. What is parental leave? So I'll jump on that one since I kind of suggested this topic uh, as between me and Lucas. So parental leave is just any time that an employer lets an employee take time off from work because of childbirth or associated things. But it can also be more than that. Um, it can have to do with adoption. It can have to do with placement for foster care. Um, but when we talk about parental leave, we're really talking about sort of two different buckets. The one bucket is what most people would call bonding leave or bonding time. That's similar to the FMLA, if you're familiar with the FMLA. It's time after the birth of a child or after adoption or placement for foster care where the parents and the child can have some time at home to acclimate, get used to each other, and it's good for the child's development, it's good for the parents to have a little time off of work. Um, the second sort of bucket that we talk about when we're talking about parental leave is the medical disability piece. I, I, I remember when my wife gave birth the first time, I was amazed that that was even at all possible. Um, I didn't see how she was ever going to function again, um, but miraculously she was able to do so in a very short amount of time, but it did take a little time. So in part, parental leave accounts for those kinds of situations, particularly where a mother may have problems prior to birth. You know, you may have morning sickness issues. You may have people that need to be on bed rest for different conditions. You also have mothers who, you know, may have a natural childbirth that is more difficult and therefore requires some more time to recover after birth. But that's sort of the 
the long and short of parental leave. Yeah, and one thing that I like to think about with parental leave is distinguishing it from what we have historically thought of as maternity leave. I mean, when we think about maternity leave, you're talking really about the time that Matt was describing where the birth mother is recovering from childbirth. Um, parental leave goes far beyond that because it's really designed more for that bonding purpose. There can be components of it that factor in with the pregnancy-related disability, but one of the things we're going to talk about today is how we want you to start thinking about the two as very separate because if we start conflating them too much, then we can get into, into some discrimination problems. So I have a question. I don't, am I allowed to ask questions or is that just for the no, audience? No, we really don't know. No. Okay. Go ahead. Um, so I, one of the things that, that I learned actually at one of your conferences was the distinction between parental leave and what is typically offered to a mother for short-term disability, right? So a mama goes out and has a baby, a natural childbirth gets those six weeks, but then we let the mama stay out for 12 weeks. And I know the FMLA plays a part, but what if we pay mama for those 12 weeks? Which a lot of companies do. A lot of companies, more and more and more companies are actually starting to try to be competitive while at the same time discriminating because they're forgetting the other half of the baby equation, which is the daddy. So can you speak to that? Because I don't think, I, I wasn't prepared for that. So I'm, my guess is some other HR folks just don't know that when it comes to paid time off, if you're offering mama anything outside of STD, you're discriminating against daddy. Yeah, I mean, so I'll jump in, and I'm sure Matt will chime in on this too, but the, the big thing to think about here is if you're giving time off and it's in connection with bonding, then that has to be equal between the two. When we think about recovery, the STD, the, the recovery from childbirth, that obviously is only going to mama. But then if we want to give more on top of that to the mother, paid or unpaid for bonding purposes, we need to make sure we're thinking about dad too in that equation because otherwise we get into an absolute prototypical discrimination situation where the EEOC has been laser focused recently. Um, while nobody thinks about Title VII historically as protecting men when you think about discrimination on the basis of sex. It's, it's just the truth of it, that men are in the majority um, for purposes of that law because the law was largely passed to protect women. In 1964, women were treated extremely discriminatorily in the workplace. We're still overcoming some of those things. But the key is it's discrimination based on sex, and everybody has a sex. Both men and women are equally protected. And are not, let me make sure we're, we're right on the, the lawsuit that involved the males who were suing for discrimination because they weren't getting the same benefits. That was the Estee Lauder case. Am I right about that? Yeah, and, and that one settled in the not-too-distant past for seven figures, big money. But if, if you're thinking about implementing any sort of parental leave policy. Go back and refresh yourself on that Estee Lauder case because it's important. I'll tell you another thing that, that, that drives me crazy but continues to generate work for us um, is when clients call us and say, we'd like to have you take a look at our maternity leave policy. The lights start flashing and uh, the, the, the dollar signs start appearing before my face because if you have a maternity leave policy, it's probably unlawful. It probably discriminates against men, and you've 
probably waited too long to take a look at it. Do you agree with that? Yeah. I mean, if, if you're providing paid maternity leave that extends beyond six to eight weeks, so the six to eight week period of presumptive disability associated with childbirth, then you're providing paid bonding leave. And if it's only going to female employees at that point, that extra amount of time that extends beyond the presumptive period of disability is absolutely, it needs to be even-handed in terms of men and women. And you can just look at your employee handbook and see in the table of contents. If it says maternity leave in there, look closely. Look closer. <laughs> well, one of our, one of our uh, uh, audience members just texted a, a question in that says, employee handbooks, are they obsolete? A partner of ours no longer has one. We would like to have a shared drive for all staff to view policies, et cetera. So um, we're obviously digressing a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, we're here for fun, right? Um, handbooks are not obsolete. I would say they're not. The, the purpose of a handbook is still the same today as it was when they first came out. It's to consolidate your policies and practices in one central location. Whether you choose to put them on a shared drive or in a paper manual is up to you. I mean, it depends on how you disseminate it. It depends on what the most effective way is to get it out to your workforce and have it be effectively reviewed by your workforce. Um, many clients have gone to electronic distribution. It's still a handbook if it's a consolidation of policies in one location. Now, if you just have links to individual policies, then that's more along the lines of individual policies than a traditional handbook or manual. They accomplish the same thing. That's why I say it's not obsolete. As long as we have employees, there will be a need for policies. Ooh, can I ask a question as we've already digressed? Yeah. So individual policies are one thing, right? So you can get in trouble for one of your policies kind of going rogue and being wrong. But if you have a handbook, can't they nail you on the entire handbook? If I, I had a I had a HRVP once tell me that. Yeah, I hate handbooks. <laughs> <laughs> I well, do. I hate, what's I hate the legal handbook. opinion on that? I, I mean, I'm I'm still a fan of a handbook. I like it because when when we're defending lawsuits on the back end of things, one of the biggest defenses for us is that Farragher Ellerth defense, and. If, if you're not familiar with Farragher-Ellerth, you might want to look it up. But generally speaking, you know, if you have a handbook, if you've told employees that we don't discriminate, and if you feel like you're being discriminated against or retaliated, tell your employer or tell your supervisor, tell somebody, we'll investigate it, we'll deal with it. As long as somebody goes to the steps of telling and we act appropriately, that's our best defense as a company. If you don't have that in writing, you don't have that defense. So at the very least, you're going to have to have, in my opinion, no employer should be without at least one policy, yeah. you know, which is that policy. Yeah, there's, there's a short list of what I would call mandatory policies. Harassment policy is essential. Um, what I'll call a safe harbor policy under the Fair Labor Standards Act that says if you have concerns about the way you're being paid or you think there was an improper unlawful deduction from your wages, come and talk to us about it. That gives us a safe harbor defense in that scenario. Um, so there are this very short list of policies that are mandatory. FMLA policy, if you, are, if you have more than 50 employees in your organization, you must have a policy, period. Now, whether it's a simple version that looks just like the DOL poster 
or a comprehensive FMLA policy is up to you, but it has to be there. So there will always be a need for policies. Whether you consolidate them into a handbook is really a matter of preference, more so than um, legal obligation. But once you do have it, the obvious burden is you got to update the whole thing. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. I know you've got to have policies. It's just I don't like the hard copy handbooks that are given to people and then because of the, five minutes later. yeah, because every time you make a change, then okay, who has the old one? Who can claim they didn't get the new one? That sort of thing. So I think having it on a, a shared drive, some sort of electronic um, uh, system where you can make changes pretty rapidly and, and, and get the notice out to people would be better. I, I did want to ask something though about leave, and you know, we we have you know, family medical leave has been around since I think 1993, but now we're seeing paid leave. And, and state and laws and maybe even the federal government. I wanted to know what you guys thought maybe about that. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things that I'm doing most these days has to do with that paid family leave. I mean, you're seeing lots of different states. California's got a paid requirement. Washington's got a paid requirement. New Jersey's got a paid requirement. I think Rhode Island has a paid requirement. New York. New York has a new paid requirement. Um, and so they're really cropping up. And if you haven't sort of familiarized yourself with, you know, what states are out there that have these policies versus where are our employees so that you know that you're complying where your employees are, that's going to be a problem. The sort of the second thing in terms of after you've figured out what your footprint looks like and where the paid leave requirements are, the next thing is to figure out what, what are your current policies. Because these paid parental leave requirements at the state level you know, are, are going to sit on top of or sit beside your existing parental leave policies. So you need to take another look at those policies and say, does the way we have this policy drafted make sense in the context of the Washington paid family leave requirement? Or should we just do away with that policy altogether? I need to ask another question about handbooks. But it's related to policies. So Hispanic workforce, huge where I work, um, I've actually worked in numerous workforces that have lots of different languages incorporated within the business. Um, there isn't a requirement to speak English or necessarily read and write in English at numerous of the workplaces that I've been employed. What is my legal obligation to translate policies? So, so let's start with like paid sick leave, right? Or like paid, paid paternity leave. Yeah, I mean, so if you know that you have a predominant workforce population that speaks another language, you would be remiss not to translate into that language for those mandatory essential policies. Because otherwise, I think you lose the defense. Things like the Farragher-Ellert defense, the one that says we acted in good faith, we didn't act negligently when we get a harassment complaint. If somebody says, you have a policy, you disseminated it, but you didn't disseminate it in Spanish, and I only speak Spanish, you knew I only speak Spanish, my manager knows I only speak Spanish, so did you really make me aware of anything? I mean, that's what I think that employee would do to challenge you on that. In terms of legal obligation, there's not a state that I'm aware of, definitely not federally, that mandates translation of policies into another language. If you're in Canada, the, and, and you have operations in Quebec, you must have your policies in French. That's, that's one unique language requirement in North America. And then you can put them in English as well, but they must be in French. Um, but beyond that, no legal obligations. But, but you did mention paid sick leave, and you, you may 
have known it or, or others may know it, the paid sick leave requirements at the state and local level are frequently coming with notice requirements. And a lot of those notice requirements require some foreign language requirement. For instance, if 5% if of your workforce speaks Laotian or you know, Russian, you have to post it in those languages. Yeah, we've got a couple of other questions that came from the audience, and one was, um, was fair versus equal treatment? Air on which side? Yeah. I hate to. I always ask. I hate to ask a lawyer that, but go ahead, uh, I'm asking. Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on my dad hat now and tell you what. When my girls come to me who are 13 and 10 right now, and they say, "Daddy, that's not fair," I say, "The fair comes in October," and and they have to deal with that because I'm dad. And, and, and that's okay. If you as HR tell your employees a response like that and say, just deal with it, fairness is a subjective state of mind, you're going to have a world of trouble from an employee relations issue. Legally, it may not necessarily get you in trouble because ultimately equality is what the law wants to see. But the way I always train folks on this is pretty straightforward. It's the golden rule. We've known it since kindergarten. Treat people the way you'd want to be treated. Put yourself in their shoes, and if you say, man, I would feel like this is really unfair sitting on the other side of the table, then approach the situation differently, because that's how your employee is going to feel in that scenario, and it's going to lead to claims. Yeah, that's actually a great answer, and, and um, I got, there's one other one that we had come up. It's, can you discuss the application of uh, FMLA? Wow, I don't know. It's, in FMLA, um, bonding, uh, the South Carolina Pregnancy Act, uh, ST, STD policies. That's about 12 questions yeah, in one, but that's, that's um, not easy. Matt, you want to kind of start talking about the overlap between yeah. all of those? So let's talk a little bit about, I'll start with sort of the, the, the federal piece. On the FMLA, obviously you've got the bonding leave requirements, the, the mother can take 12 weeks uh, bonding. The father can take 12 weeks bonding. Um, those are unpaid. Unless they work together. Well, unless they yeah. And And here's an, an interesting one. I don't know how often it comes up in your workplaces, but I had to help a client with this recently. The spouses who work together issue for bonding, they only get 12 weeks combined. But when the birth mother has six to eight weeks of leave on the front end connected to her serious health condition which is pregnancy-related disability, that's not subject to that rule. And so she could take six to eight weeks if her doctor certifies it, and then she starts her bonding leave. That's the chunk of time that gets put together with her spouse. So don't apply the entire pregnancy leave to that rule, or else you're going to shortchange somebody. All right, so you've got, you've got your bonding under the federal FMLA. That's unpaid leave. Lots of employers have then sort of stacked on top of that a parental leave policy, whether it's two weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. You've seen, uh, you know, companies like Google have gone to 20 weeks. Anything sort of what I'm typically seeing is six to 12 weeks tops on that paid parental leave portion. So then you have that paid in addition to the FMLA, and you want to make sure your policies are drafted in such a way that is concurrent that all of that time, or that is, so it's clear that that time runs concurrently because you don't want to confuse employees and make them think they get 12 weeks unpaid for FMLA either before or after they take their paid parental leave. 
So that's two things. Then if you're in states like Washington or California or Massachusetts, you may have some additional paid leave, possibly funded through premium payments into sort of like a um, unemployment benefits type scenario. Those become even more complicated when you're talking about your policy, stacking those three things on top of each other. You want to talk about South Carolina a little bit? Yeah, and before I talk about South Carolina, one thing to keep in mind as you're stacking that stuff, these state-specific paid leave rules for paid family leave, think about them like state-mandated STD because it's really an insurance program. That's what it is at its heart. It's not the employer fully funding out of its general resources paid leave for the employer. You're paying into a fund that the state manages and then they're making claims against that fund. Um, and so it runs more like STD than like what we're talking about here. Where I've seen employers get into trouble with this stacking is when you have STD lined up with paid parental leave. Um, a lot of STD policies provide two-thirds pay, 60% pay, whatever it is under your plan. Um, I've had clients come back and say, well, can I let a birth mother supplement that 60-66% by using paid parental leave for the remaining percentage to get them to 100%? And it seems, yes, I mean, the logical answer is yes, you could. The legal answer, don't do it. And the reason why is what you're doing then is you are shortchanging her on the total amount of leave that she gets. Yes, she will get the pay, but you're shortening the amount of total leave time that she has available compared to the man. Because a man can take STD leave for his back injury and get paid at two-thirds and take time off for six to eight weeks, and then he still gets his six to eight weeks or 12 weeks or whatever of paid parental leave. And so what clients are doing is they're having to figure out are we going to just tell employees you have to use that STD and that's all you get during the period of disability? Are they going to supplement it and give the birth mother more to get them to 100? Or are you going to do something different and get even more creative? But the key is their paid parental leave does not start until the STD period ends. Can I ask a question? It's my question this time. It's a good one. I always call Lucas, I'm like, I got a good one for you. <laughs> um, so 17 months ago, I brought a little girl into my home through the foster care system. And let's argue that I took six weeks of FMLA leave to care for her. On Monday, I adopted her. Do I get FMLA again? Um, so if it's still within the year, 12 months of the placement for adoption or foster care. That is a single event. So uh, adoption and foster care is one event. So if, I don't get like it's 12 the same weeks child, of foster. Yeah, if it's the same child, then it would be. Because it's the key is placement. The child's already been placed with you. Okay. And so there's not a new placement once you adopt that child. That's just a legal formality that, that the child has become yours. Hmm. The placement took place with foster care. I don't know if I agree with that. Yeah, we'll discuss I, I, it later. Could, I think you, I would, I would argue she could. Oh, I'm on his side. He's going to argue for me. <laughs> no, I, I would argue, I mean, it, it's not clear, obviously, and you may be right, yeah. but I think there's at least an argument if you wanted to push it with an, with an employer, you could, make, you could make the argument that I think she wants to make. Yeah. You, know, you know what this, this proves? This proves the old adage that if you have one lawyer in the town, he's broke. If you have two, they're both filthy rich. 
so, because they can always find two sides. <laughs> the, um, the, the couple of really quick questions that came in. Um, I think this is one of those things, like I got a friend that I'm asking this for, but uh, <laughs> what does sexually transmitted diseases, STDs, have to do with this conversation, if anything? That's, that's Lucas's specialty. <laughs> um, I am unsure what sexually transmitted diseases could possibly have to do with this question. I think the uh, issue is that topic. the acronym is the same for short-term disability. Yeah, yeah. short-term disability is what we mean diseases. when we say STD. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> we and have so much fun in HR. And then one other thing, just, you know, we actually didn't hit this point, but I did go to question. They said we have been, we've been covered under, um, we have never been covered under family medical leave. We will hit 53 staff by this year, and I'm assuming that's in the same location or within 50 miles. Um, when do we have to start complying with the FMLA? Is it 20 weeks? Policies in the works. So, so if you have 50 or more employees for 20 calendar weeks dur during this calendar year or the past calendar year, that's what the government's going to look at to say, are you a covered employer? So that's, that's threshold number one is, is your organization covered? Then when the employee comes to us and says, hey, I want to use some FMLA, we're going to look at it on that day and say, as of today, are there 50 or more employees within 75 miles of where you work to determine if the employee is eligible? So two separate determinations there. All right, so I can't believe that this, this is like the quickest podcast ever. This went so fast. But we're out of time, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to our yeah. guests. Yeah, I want to thank them. Thank you also for sponsoring the uh, Survive HR conference here on Anderson University's campus. We also want to thank our overall podcast sponsor, uh, Hainsworth Sinkler Boyd, who sponsors the whole uh, podcast series. And please go on uh, the um, uh, iTunes, Spotify, the podcast app, and listen and subscribe. Hey, thanks so much, guys. Bye.